Welcome to a new season of Twin Peaks Cinema. We're going to have three films over the next three months that deal with the theme of small town blues. The first of these is King's Row, and I'm really looking forward to digging into that. Before we get to that, though, just wanted to announce what else I've been up to in terms of podcasts uh, on the Lost in Twin Peaks feed where I've been covering every episode of the show. I finished the first season in December, and now there'll be a pause, and uh, I may uh, catch up with uh, Firewalk With Me in Season 3 before I come back for Season 2 eventually, just because I want to hit some anniversaries this year. For uh, the Lost in the Movies podcast feed for this season, January through June, I'm going to be doubling up, or not so much doubling up, but covering... uh, two films by different directors uh, month to month. So right now I just covered The Piano by Jane Campion and the next one in February will be another Campion film. So you can check out that too. All these links will be in the show notes. And on my Patreon uh, for Twin Peaks Cinema over there, I covered the film Mysterious Skin, which will eventually appear on this podcast feed. And I did that along with some other Twin Peaks characters and locations and so forth and uh, i also released the uh, season two finale episode for all patrons of uh, lost in twin peaks so you can access that uh, immediately which uh, probably won't appear on my public feed for about a year so for my twin peaks conversation uh, on youtube i did a interview with scott ryan who's coming out with a new firewalk with me book and uh, the larger part of that interview is featured on Patreon for $5 a month patrons. So that's my other podcast activity. Definitely check it out if you enjoy this work or other things that I do. And now let's move on to King's Row. I'm Drake McHugh. Maybe you've heard about me. You wonder if you haven't, the way people gab. And most of what they say is true. But the one thing they can't say is that I ever do anything behind anyone's back. <laughs> anyone ever don't you know that you don't have to ask questions to understand that do you king's row like several films that we've covered in this twin peaks cinema series is the story of a small town and like those other stories it seems very pleasant on the surface and is something else underneath i'm not sure though that many of the other uh stories go quite as far as this one does maybe Peyton Place, I suppose, but uh, this this story takes place at the turn of the century, so it's a time when, uh, even more so than kind of the Depression, World War II era that Peyton Place takes in, a lot of the town's senior secrets would be kept under wraps and whispered about. It's based on a novel by, let me pull up the name here because I don't remember it offhand, but uh, it was a novel written in, I believe, the late 30s, and it depicts a story that the or a town that the author grew up in. And it depicts it very unfavorably to the point where people in the town were upset about this this and wouldn't even stock it in their library. So it was recognized right away what it was what it was referring to. It was a town called Buford, Missouri, if I'm not mistaken. This is where uh, the author Henry Bellman grew up and uh, was 
somewhat ostracized because he was from a German family and everyone else, I guess, was, you know, more uh, of English stock. And uh, it, it was rumored that he was illegitimate. So he, he had a bit of a chip on his shoulder and he poured it all into this book. Now, what's interesting, of course, is watching the film. It's shot on the kind of Hollywood soundstage and the dressed up locations that just look really gorgeous and kind of romanticized. So you're getting this seedy portrait but it's still very, um, it, it still captures that sense of kind of nostalgia and longing and hominess in the film anyway. So it's an interesting mix of those qualities, much like Twin Peaks, I would say, uh, perhaps a little less intentionally, just in the sense that uh, so much of what is sort of charming about King's Row is inherent in uh, the studio style of filmmaking, I would say, whenever they're kind of creating these worlds and living inside them, uh, there's just a kind of charm and wonder to it that I I've always talked about with Twin Peaks, the Disneyland quality of the sets, the same sort of thing there. But in that case, it's it feels a little more like a conscious choice at that point, because the TV at that time, I don't think was so much into this sense of world building and creating this kind of a uh, heightened reality and in particularly the way that Twin Peaks did maybe in other ways so in that sense Twin Peaks was consciously reaching back to something that the uh, old Hollywood movies had grown into a little more organically maybe if that makes sense the two works do share that sense of like a cr fabricating creating a world uh, out of uh, sort of an imagined archetypal uh, type of environment, but then putting more realistic situations into that world, sort of subverting what they themselves created. So let's talk about King's Row specifically, the story it tells before broadening our view to how it relates to Twin Peaks. It's the story of Paris Mitchell. We see him first as a boy growing up, and this is the part of the movie where everything seems the most closest to being idealized sort of like a child would see it he and his friends are playing running through the streets everything seems very carefree he lives with his grandmother and uh, his friends with this girl cassandra he calls cassie they're sort of playmates and have a little bit of a of a you know child he has a little bit of a childlike crush on her and even in this environment there's a sort of an uneasy sense of things not being quite right you know we wonder where are his parents uh, he has a very loving grandmother but not sort of a conventional family like we might put into this sort of scenario cassandra lives with her father and her mother kind of hides up in the window looks out doesn't come out and talk to anybody her father's sort of dark and forbidding, and nobody wants to go to her house. It's it's sort of this, almost like this gothic castle pl pl planted down into the middle of this sunny uh, white picket fence neighborhood. Hardly anyone shows up to her birthday party, and she's crying. And then she tells uh, Paris that her father is taking her out of school. He's going to teach her himself and so she is kind of shut away like her mother has been. And then as we go forward in time, Paris is now a young man. And uh, he's studying medicine with her father, who is a doctor, but doesn't have any patience, as someone comments. It turns out that he's particularly interested in psychiatry. I'm not sure if he's practicing or just kind of studying constantly. It's never quite made clear how he lives his life, basically. But his wife has recently died. It's just him and his daughter there now. And Paris gets to see Cassandra again and talk to her a little bit. But for the most part, they can't come in contact. Like the doctor tower actually tells him, you know, come in the back way to my office. Don't go through the house and tries to keep her apart from everyone. But nonetheless, they resume their romance. They fall in love. And he goes over there one night and it's heavily implied that he they 
he sleeps with her there. And then he runs off to his friend, who we'll talk about in a moment, Drake McHugh, played by Ronald Reagan. Probably the most famous thing about this movie is Reagan, his performance, particularly one of his lines. But in this part of the movie, he's more just in the best friend role, backing his buddy up. He's a much more worldly figure, very cheerful, always a woman around his arm, and kind of has a reputation around town as lovable, but kind of no good. And so anyways, he's trying to uh, to help Paris out. And Paris is caught between the father and the daughter because the father has become a mentor figure to him. He almost thinks of him as his own son and is sponsoring him to go off to Vienna to study psychiatry. It's this new kind of approach to uh, to looking at the mind at the end of the 19th century. And of course, Vienna is where Sigmund Freud was doing his work and was about to publish The Interpretation of Dreams. In fact... Uh, there's a big deal is made in the movie about the turn of the century. Like he writes a letter and they close in very, you know, prominently on the date of January 1st, 1900. And then they show in the small town where Reagan is romancing, uh, I'm calling him Reagan, but you know, Drake is romancing uh, Randy Monahan, the character who comes in the second half. Um, although we do see her briefly as a little girl. Uh, she's played by Anne Sheridan and uh, she's, kind of a lovable tomboy as a little kid and then when she grows up she and him have a romance and she is her father works on the railroad obviously you know they're not supposed to sort of cross paths because uh, drake is actually living off of a trust fund that his aunt or his mother or somebody left him uh on the nicer side of town and uh so they're having a romance and so anyways the reason i brought them up is because after paris is writing that letter we cut to the kind of snowy banks where they're ice skating or something, and they're writing in the snow, Happy New Year, and he crosses out and writes, Happy New Century, and she laughs. So the the interesting thing about this is 1900 uh, is the date that Sigmund Freud published The Interpretation of Dreams, and it actually, I believe, was published a little bit earlier, but they dated the copyright to 1900, like he wanted it to be the sort of represent the dawn of a new century. And there is an interesting fissure, if that's the right word, throughout this film of the kind of idea of the 19th century and the 20th century. And in many ways, Paris is a 19th century man grappling with 20th century ideas. And I would say Dr. Tower is probably the most modern figure in the movie in terms of how he sees life and the world. Now, of course, ironically, he longs for a much earlier time. And he has a great speech. And I haven't said it yet, but Dr. Tower is played by Claude Rains. And uh, although Reagan's very good in this and Anne Sheridan's great, uh, I think this is probably the best performance in the movie. He's just very subtle, uh, superb characterization. His expressions, there's a kind of melancholy about him that pulls you in. And uh, even though he could be a very kind of off-putting character, something about him kind of attracts you and pulls you in towards him. So anyways, he, he gives a whole speech, which he later refers to as epigrammatic sententiousness, which I loved. He says, you should pay some attention to the 12th and 13th centuries. Now man's discomfort, his real discomfort in this world began not long after then. Oh, I know, yes. Soap, macadamized roads, dentistry, and freedom of speech. Negligible factors. In the 13th century, man was happier and more comfortable in his world than he is now. I'm speaking of psychic man and his relations with the whole universe. So he is, in some ways, this medieval figure, in other ways, the most modern in the film. And we can never quite get a sense of what's going on with his daughter, why he's guarding her so zealously, why she's so seemingly traumatized. She's running out in the middle of the night, uh, 
played by uh, Betty Field, who I'll have reason to mention again soon for some sort of six degrees of Twin Peaks separation there. Uh, but she she's coming in from the storm, looking all wild-eyed, her hair stray, saying she wants to talk to Paris, and then clamming up and, oh, I can't, I can't talk about it, and running off again. And uh, so that's the f- the first half of the movie is mostly dealing with their relationship, and then the second half deals with Drake and his romance with Randy while Paris is off in Vienna, and then something happens with him. So this is a movie, you know, you probably, if you haven't seen it already, you probably don't mind hearing spoilers, but just to give you this warning, there are a couple big twists in the movie, and that's what I'm going to talk about. And one of them in particular relates very heavily to Twin Peaks. So to get into that stuff, the second, before, you know, when we're reaching the halfway point of the movie, there's just a violent shift in gear where... uh Paris follows Cassandra back to her house after she comes to him, sort of almost hysterical, sees her with her father on the porch, kind of in shadow, and they go inside, and him and Drake's like, see, everything's okay, and then the next morning, Drake comes into him and tells him that Dr. Tower killed Cassandra in the night, poisoned her, and then shot himself, and they're horrified, and they can't figure it out, and then uh, Paris goes back to the house, comes across a journal of uh, the doctor and reads it and the way they explain it in the film and we'll dig into this a bit but the way that they explain it in the film is oh well uh, you know he was a promising young doctor his wife developed dementia and he had to kind of take care of her and so he didn't he was he was kind of locked up in this town in this house away from the world and and uh, then he saw the same signs developing in his daughter, and he also saw that maybe he knew Paris was having a romance with her and that she would hold Paris back or something. So it's this weird kind of almost perverse altruism in his mind. And, you know, to be fair, the film isn't exactly endorsing this. It's saying that this was sort of his sick way of looking at it and what he had to do. And and uh, Paris has a more, you know, he says to Drake, you know how you feel about somebody ironically, he says this to Drake, you know how you feel about somebody with a, you know, debilitation and uh, physical kind of injury and disability. He said, well, yeah, I feel bad for him. It's not their fault or something like that. And he says, well, that's how I feel about the problems with the mind. So again, this 19th century sort of practical, all-purpose mindset, uh, you know, a stereotype of the 19th century, obviously, we're generalizing wildly here, but that being sort of applied to this more broad view of the psyche and everything that develops more throughout the 20th century. Kind of interesting. And of course, also to consider that this film is made in 1941 uh, at the height of World War II, where the U.S. is not in it yet, but the Germany has basically taken over all of Europe. There's already been a First World War. The whole world has rapidly modernized and mechanized. Heavy industry is everywhere now. And of course, the Great Depression has just happened and it's all society in turmoil, communism, fascism, everything. So that's the context. And with this movie and I suppose the book before it is looking back at this earlier, supposedly simpler time, we're already within this time. People like Dr. Tower are longing for simpler times before that. Of course, make of that what you will. And so anyways, the second half of the movie we can touch on more briefly, even though it's the more famous part, I would say, because it's somewhat less related to Twin Peaks. But in the second half, Drake is, uh, his, the banker runs off with his trust fund, so now he has to work. And uh, him, he basically kind of joins the working class, I guess you could say, because he's in love with Randy. So he starts living with her. He wants to marry her. His own people kind of reject him. He's already been rejected 
by the daughter of the town doctor because he disapproves so heartily. Not Dr. Tower, but uh, another doctor, Dr. Gordon, who, as it turns out, uh, is a sadist who actually operates on people when they don't need it because he sees himself as some kind of rectifier of people's sins or whatever. Just a deranged character, basically, who has an air of propriety as a front. Unable to settle down with her, Drake and Randy are drawn together. So that's where he's at. He's now working on the railroad, trying to make some money since he lost all of his. And then he gets into an accident where a bunch of crates fall on him. Dr. Gordon comes to operate on him and he removes his legs. It's heavily implied unnecessarily. And so now he is uh, he, he is a double amputee and he can't get out of bed. And the famous part of the movie is Reagan lying in the bed screaming and Ann Sheridan runs up, swings open the door and he's lying there flailing about and he goes, where's the rest of me? And that actually became the title of a, his autobiography that he wrote later in the 60s. That was really his kind of the height of his career in a lot of ways. This is his most celebrated movies, most celebrated performance, where he gets to take that famous Sonny Reagan demeanor and turn it to sort of a darker place. And uh, then in the end of the film, Paris has to decide, does he want to tell Drake the truth, the hard psychological truth of uh, why he was amputated and that it was unnecessary and everything like that. And he goes ahead and tells him, unfortunately, Drake uses it as kind of a springboard to become confident again. Like, well, who does that guy think he is? You know, and so it ends with him, Paris, literally running into the field, embracing this kind of uh, this this woman who's come into the film without much development. It's just kind of a rescue figure of this young Austrian woman who even looks a little like Cassandra and is now his comfort. So, so it's playing out on this kind of psychodramatic level where he himself is getting his uh, transcendence. That's the film. And the the Twin Peaks link from the premise onward is fairly obvious, these small towns with dark secrets underneath. One thing I find interesting about that in King's Row, just as in Peyton Place in Our Town, which we've also covered for Twin Peaks Cinema, is these films all give us this view of the town, this kind of panorama of the townspeople's lives from the townspeople's point of view. Our main character grows up there. It's usually somebody who wants to leave, um, not in our town's case, interestingly enough. I'm not... That's something interesting I'd have to look into why Thornton Wilder didn't take that approach because so many writers do because the writers themselves left the small towns that they're writing about. So they kind of project that onto their characters. Uh, but, you know, often that's the case, a character who leaves, but they do come from that town. So if they have a little bit of an outsider's view because they've seen the rest of the world at a later point, they're still rooted in it. And that's not the case with Twin Peaks. Uh, we do get a little bit of that in those early scenes reacting to Laura's death, but really it's Cooper who becomes our focal point into this town. And so the town becomes an object of investigation that we're a little bit distanced from, not necessarily encouraged to identify with the people who are from there. So that I find an interesting contrast, just the way these different works deal with the relationship between these somewhat remote communities and the wider world and how they themselves manifest as kind of a microcosm of that wider, of that, you know, whole world beyond them that is also represented within them. Both uh, King's Row and Twin Peaks have a kind of obsession with secrets. Reagan has, or <laughs> Drake has a great line where he says, 
you know, that people are mad at him. He says, it's because I'm out in the open about things because I don't sneak around. And this is very reminiscent of Bobby, I think, yelling at the funeral, accusing everyone. You knew what was wrong with her. You didn't do anything. You didn't say anything. You're all hypocrites. That's a very tried and true convention. I think, put it this way, if Twin Peaks was that kind of novel or film, where a character, you know, it was being told through a character in the town. I sometimes think Bobby might be that character. As he comes up in the pilot, we're encouraged to kind of jeer at him a little bit. He's presented more as a villainous type figure. But as the series goes along, and certainly by the time season three comes back, and there he is in the town, he's become this figure of respect who is kind of looking at everything and trying to do his job. He's an everyman in a way that some of these protagonists aren't. Like, they're usually exceptional individuals who go out. One of the first psychiatrists in America in King's Rose case, uh, Peyton Place. I feel like she becomes a writer or something in the city. I'm trying to remember which one of the characters um, does that. But, you know, the, still, it almost feels at times like Bobby is the one who who sees the town. Certainly that scene with Jacoby where he confesses all of the all of uh, Lars and his transgressions, or, or not so much their transgressions, but their insecurities to Jacoby. And Jacoby, of course, is interesting to consider in light of this film as the psychiatrist in this old-fashioned, in some ways, small town. Uh, he's kind of an inheritor of the Paris character in King's Row, I suppose, although he is a bit more cavalier with his responsibilities, I would say. Well, then again, Paris almost institutionalizes somebody in this film just to protect Drake, uh, the woman that Drake dated before or wanted to court, I guess would be the terminology of the time, uh, whose father probably crippled him. She wants to tell everyone what her father did because she is so angry at him. And uh, they try to protect Drake from that information. And Paris almost has her uh, institutionalized, actually considers it. So may maybe I shouldn't say that he's, you know, much more responsible than Jacoby, even though he eventually decides not to do it. It's also interesting, the structure of this film, how the back half is so different from the first. It's really telling two different stories. Peyton Place has a little bit of that. Our Town is, you know, a two or three act play. I can't remember. You know, they, they jump in forward in time. And so there is kind of this tradition of, of telling these stories of a small town, telling multiple stories, and telling in particular, like, two or three big ones that are kind of separate from one another episodes. It's no surprise that, you know, Peyton Place became a TV show. And actually, King's Row did for much shorter spans, like seven episodes as part of a overall uh, program that ran in like the mid-50s. In that way as well, I think they set the template for Twin Peaks, this idea of telling a story and then telling a different one in the same place and using the town as a opportunity to do so. Maybe you could trace that back to like something, I think maybe Winesburg, Ohio does that where it's, I can't remember if I read that or not, but I remember reading about it. I think I did read it at one point in like high school or something. And it's it's almost like an anthology of short stories in a novel, in the form of a novel. And I know Faulkner did that as well and others. So there's that kind of element to it as well. A lot was cut out of the book to make it into a film. In fact, they the executives were really wary of doing this as a film because the book was so sensational in terms of its content. Uh, it had, you know, just from the description, I've, I've tried to find kind of a plot summary of it, and it's hard to find, but just from the description of what they cut out, they list homosexuality, necrophilia, incest, but, you know, just all, all of these sort of, uh, these social phenomena that they weren't really supposed to talk about much at the time, and certainly were not allowed to deal with in a film. What's interesting is how the film does deal with these subjects. The character who is gay in the book is cut out completely, so we don't get that. There were supposed to be three characters. There's Paris... 
Drake and another one, uh, I think his name's like Joseph or something. And he is gay and he's like, um, makes passes at Paris who kind of isn't interested, but is sympathetic to him. And it's, it's considered a very sympathetic portrait of, of, gay life at that time and that has been lost completely in the film although interestingly people have noted there's a bit of a homoerotic or at least platonic romanticized uh deep deep friendship between paris and drake that they seem almost like lovers at times especially as he watches him go off on the train and then he switches his attention to randy like right there and then like okay i need somebody else to project my affection onto uh so people have noticed that and, and said that that's actually even more built up than in the book so that's interesting but the big subject that is transformed into the film is incest and that's also one of the closest relations of this work to twin peaks so as you could probably guess in the book the father actually is molesting the daughter, Cassandra. Dr. Tower is uh, keeping her there and abusing her, basically uh, ends up killing her. I don't know if it's out of jealousy or guilt or what, but he's a very Leland Palmer-esque figure in that sense. And the film deals with him in that way, I think. They, we don't see too many interactions between him and the daughter, so that is sort of kept off off screen, which in a way helps because it means that we don't we don't really have anything to contradict that reading that the film is heavily implying just based on what it took from the book that whole explanation of why he did it uh again that was sort of their concoction to compensate for the fact that they removed the real motive that was in the book and it's interesting in light of twin peaks how twin peaks has to kind of come up with its own cover story in a way where there was an evil spirit and they make leland out to be sort of the victim of bob in episode 16 then firewalk with me keeps that idea but fleshes it out in a way that makes leland feel more responsible and in this film you have something similar where they offer this other explanation of oh well it was because his daughter was losing her mind and he didn't want somebody else da, da, da. but it doesn't it doesn't quite resonate as you watch it you feel something's off and i think the movie works if you interpret it as being that there actually is this incestuous relationship in the text of the movie i mean it almost doesn't make sense otherwise her frantic appearances particularly to just be sort of brushed off as oh she's got some sort of dementia it doesn't quite play that way you almost feel like they were directed to act it as like, no, this is the real story that's going on here. And this is all, of course, so reminiscent of, of Laura and all the things she would say to people and they would know something was wrong, but they couldn't quite put their finger on what this idea that she, she has some sort of specific secret that she can't tell them. It's not just something vague. Uh, there, there's something going on that they can't quite get to. And they, they refer to the house too, as being kind of crazy, which of course brings to mind the Palmer house and Paris has a line where he says, each of us lives in multiple worlds. It's like that with her. And I think that comes from something her father has said. So this idea, of course, very Peaksian of, of having a foot in these different worlds and being kind of unstable because of that, because you, you live in both places. There's a sense of ominous dread in the early parts of the film. Something bad's going to happen. Paris says he doesn't know what, but he's got a feeling, almost feels like he might be responsible. There's nothing supernatural in King's Row. But I think watching it in light of Twin Peaks underscores how in Twin Peaks, it feels like the psychic human energy generates the spiritual activity rather than vice versa. So you have that same sense in Twin Peaks that this haunted, fevered kind of secrecy at the heart of the town is festering and manifesting out into the world in different ways. Also, 
feel like Harold at times. There's a moment where Cassandra opens the door and is peeking out, reminded me of Harold in Twin Peaks and his his recluse ways. But he's also a lot like Dr. Tower, this very intelligent figure who hides away with his books and has it brings people into his world and kind of speaks to them and doesn't want to be betrayed by them. So, th- so that is interesting in that light. That's probably a good note to end on. I feel like there's more to say about the Cassandra lar connection um well they are both blonde there's that but also just the way that they talk about her i I, i'm trying to pull up some specific lines here like for example paris says they're talking about her and he says there's something more to it some mystery about cassie herself and she says don't try to understand me a lot of her conversations with paris who is a nice guy but a little dopey at times uh very reminiscent of laura and james where she's trying to say things to him and he can't quite grapple with what it is she's trying to tell him. And then she pulls back. No, 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 I can't say anything. I shouldn't have even brought it up. It gets worse when we talk about it. And he has all these whys after she's gone. You can see this in a way, and I probably not consciously, I don't think Froster Lynch had it in mind, but it feels like a template in particular for the teenage characters in Twin Peaks and how they're grappling with coming up in this world where they are the innocent ones who are confronted with all this adult corruption and just overwhelmed by it. I think of the scene where Ben and Jerry are going off to One-Eyed Jacks, and then we cut to Donna and James sitting on the couch. A lot of times in the 80s, teens are depicted as these wild, crazy kids living on the edge, you know, that their straight-jacketed parents don't understand. Uh, you know, from the 50s to the 80s, you really have that. O- only when the boomers become the parents in those films does that uh, that vision of it start to go away a little bit because they all were the original uh, teenagers. But in Twin Peaks, the kids really retain their innocence and are the ones who feel more threatened by the adults who are engaged in much more uh, nefarious activity, ranging from just illicit affairs to actual murder and you know outright corruption. And in this film, there's no you know they 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 don't go easy on that. Like the idea of this doctor who is literally just maiming people across town is kind of horrifying. And it's present from the beginning. Like they visit a little kid whose dad is being operated on by this doctor, and the guy's screaming out the window. So there's a darkness in it, even from those early, seemingly more innocent scenes throughout and the last thing to mention is betty field i mentioned the actress who plays cassandra tower the laura palmer like figure in king's row victim of implicit incest she goes on to play the uh, mother of hope lang's character in peyton place and hope lang in that film of course is abused by her stepfather and then hope lang goes on to play the mother of laura dern in blue velvet and so i want to thank uh, the Lindsay, Lindsay Hallam, the author of uh, the Twin Peaks Firewalk Me book for pointing that out to me, that kind of chain of relationship between all these melodramas. Uh, she talks a lot about melodrama and I believe wrote an essay about melodrama in Twin Peaks in, I think, the Blue Rose uh, magazine or the book, The Women of, uh, of Twin Peaks. I think she talks about that as well. So <laughs> interesting genealogy there of these these women in trouble and how it leads directly into Lynch's work. And uh, that that aspect of it, I think, is uh, one of the things that reminded me of King's Row and got me to want to rewatch it for this uh, for this series for the first time in about 10 years. So I'll, I'll link that interview below as well, where uh, where Lindsay Hallam talks about that uh, melodrama connection. That's it for this edition of Twin Peaks Cinema Small Town Blues. But of course, there's more coming up in February. We'll get to that in a moment. 
For now, just wanted to say if you support this or if you want to support this work, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Best way to promote this. You can also become a patron on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. You can check out my site, lostinthemovies.com, where I have not just podcasts, but video essays. I have a series going up on the Olympics right now, all the documentaries that were created about that and uh, other things like that on there. So now for a teaser of what's coming up in February, this is another story of a turn-of-the-century all-American small-town environment with, uh, I think, less of an overt kind of dark, shadowy, seedy side, but still a darkness that lingers beneath it. Uh, This is a a story, I guess it's a, you know, a play before a movie that very much influenced Mark Frost. So uh, here is Thornton Wilder's Our Town, and we'll see you with that in February. The sky is already beginning to show some streaks of light in it over there in the east, back of our mountain. The morning star gets wonderful bright the moment before it has to go. The only lights on in the town are in a cottage over in Polish town where a mother's just giving birth to twins. And down in the depot where Shawnee Hawkins is just getting ready to flag the 545 for Boston. There she is now. Of course, naturally, out in the country all around, there have been lights on for some time, what with milking and so on. But uh, town folks sleep late. 